Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. All right, this is Colin McEnroe. I'm here in the studio with Yoko Ono. Yoko, could you just move over a little bit, just like, just like an inch, an inch away? Just you're too close. All right. Jeez. Uh, we are going to be talking about Get Back's D, uh, Peter Jackson's uh, epic. And when I say epic, I mean seven hours and forty-eight minutes. <laughs> I'm not describing at this moment, anyway, any other qualities to it other than that it's epic in length. It's three parts, seven hours and forty-eight minutes. Did I mention that before? Uh, it is uh, the account uh, of the Beatles uh, in uh, in the course of recording the album that became Let It Be, and and in, uh, also in the course of figuring out how to do their final public appearance together. That turns out to be a public appearance where no one can see them. They're up on a roof, uh, the roof of their actual building, uh, and with a lot of Londoners gazing upwards, wondering where all that noise is coming from. So um, all of that, and I have to say that, you know, anecdotally, it seems like this has somehow or other transfixed a fairly large portion of the viewing public. It's on Disney+. Plus. People have been watching it uh, a lot and discussing it on the social medias, on the Twitters, on the Facebooks, uh, on the Instagrams. So um, so we're going to discuss it too. What else What else can people do, really? Uh, and here to do it today uh, is Steve Metcalf, uh, who began the week with us with the Sondheim show. We began the week with Sondheim, and now we're with the Beatles here at the end. Uh, Steve's second appearance of the week. Uh, he is, of course, uh, a, um, a composer uh, and a, a musician uh, and a writer about music and lots of other things as well. Irene Papoulis uh, teaches writing at Trinity College. Brian Francis Slattery is arts editor for the New Haven Independent uh, and a producer at WNHH Radio. And according to pre-show conversation, is in four bands, uh, one of which has like I don't know. One of them is Balkan music or something. I, I think I know that. Um, unless unless they broke up, that was a really like. Didn't Yoko get involved with one of the people in the Balkan music band? Yeah, we're, we're on pins and needles now. Yeah. I mean, had, <laughs> there's right? always a Yoko. There's always somewhere. A Yoko. There's always a Yoko somewhere. <laughs> so I guess I want to begin. I, I, I want to begin by asking two different questions. The second question is going to be what various people's theories are about why this, you know, is so popular, so heavily discussed, 
so beloved by critics. And, you know, if you believe in Rotten Tomatoes, which I don't necessarily, the Rotten Tomatoes rating and the critics rating are essentially the same. It's a 92 and a 93. Um, but before we get to that question, I also and I want to begin with you, Metcalf, because uh, you are, are the you know the scholar that I know about the Beatles, and some, you paid so much attention to this. So one of the questions that this asks, and we should say the Beatles aren't really breaking up at the time of this. In fact, they're going to do Abbey Road after they get done with this. But you know, this is still sort of positions itself a little bit as looking at the Beatles when they're trying to do some really good work near the end of their time together as a band, but also experiencing the kinds of tensions that they've already had in prior projects and are and the kinds of tensions that are going to break them up. Did you feel like you learned anything about that whole phenomenon that you didn't already know by watching this? Well, I think I learned that uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg has a lot to answer for. He was, of course, the director who made the infamous uh, Let It Be movie, which was the original documentary about the making of this album. And of course, you know, as I guess everybody of a certain age knows, that movie was very depressing and dark and seemed to go out of its way to, you know, sort of cast a light on on the fact that the Beatles were dissolving and it was acrimonious and it was a drag and everybody was brought down by it. And, and lo and behold, we find out from the Peter Jackson movie, from the new movie, that this was not necessarily the case. I mean, yes, there were many moments of bickering and squabbling. And of course, famously, George Harrison briefly walked out and, and just as famously walked back in, like, you know, later that day or something. But, um, you know, I, I think one of the reasons why people are interested in this is they, they have lived with this idea that, uh, you know, there is a different storyline here. And indeed, there really is a different storyline. And I think that's kind of what what is drawing people to this. You know, just to amplify that a little bit, two of the people for whom this appears to be true are the two surviving Beatles. Uh, Jackson has said that they approached this with apprehension and were surprised, although they find it stressful to watch, they were surprised um, by, they, they liked it, they didn't want any changes, they didn't object to anything, and Jackson thinks that they watched the, the, the original Lindsay Hogg thing and they kind of substituted it for their real memory that that became their memory too that they you know because they watched it decades you know for decades later that's what they thought had happened too they were maybe even pleasantly surprised to see how helpful they were to one another at various times so Irene you would have uh, lived through this whole period as a fan um, I don't know what did, what did you was there a, were there one or two big takeouts from this just things that kind of changed whatever your perceptions might have been prior to this uh, I wouldn't say they changed my perceptions, but it was really interesting to, to, you know, just to sort of like see the psychology among, among all of them. That's what, that's what kept me going, you know, things that I had sort of imagined or intuited about the relationship between, uh, among all of them were sort of became clearer in the, so, so much clearer in this and so much, so very interesting. So it was, so that was the thing that sort of one of the things that kept me going. Yeah, I mean, I just want to stay with you for a second on that. I mean, you know, you as somebody who was, you know, you're from our generation, uh, I don't know, did you have a particular idea about the personality of any given Beatle that was 
somehow or other amplified or changed or corrected by this? Do you feel differently about Paul or John or Ringo or George? Those actually are the four Beatles. I don't know how many people know that. <laughs> I mean, I could say that I, you know, I do remember being like pre-pubescent and having those pins, the pins that had to say, I like Paul, I like John, <laughs> um, et cetera. And so I, my friend and I got them and my friend liked John and I like John too. And, um, but I had to get, I like Paul because she sort of was the, was the alpha in our, in our friendship. And so I had to secretly like John while I wore my pin that said, I like Paul. Um, but what I saw, like, I didn't like, and I always thought, oh, John is the one that I like. And, um, but uh, in this one, I didn't, I, I kind of saw a side of him. I certainly saw a side of Paul that I didn't like. And I also saw a side of John that I don't like, didn't like um, so much or didn't feel as connected to as I thought I did, I would. And um, so that's just the tip of the iceberg of my thoughts about their personalities. Right. Yoko, no, we cannot uh, cut off her audio. Yoko is sitting here. She wants me to cut off your audio, and I'm not <laughs> going to do that. All right. Um, so, um, so, so, Brian, yeah, I mean, you know, you're, you've been in a lot of bands. You are in a lot of bands. I don't know. Does this sort of, this, this whole, seven and a half hour thing just seemed like sort of stuff any band lives through just being done by way more famous people. Yeah. I mean, that that's right. I mean, one of the sort of pleasures for me was to see that like sort of when, when it came down to it, the Beatles were kind of like every other band. <laughs> They're just like four people trying to make music together. And uh, it was, it was cool to see that, you know, the, that the Beatles um, had the same problems that every band has, you know, writing material that you like is hard and you, you kick it around and you change it a lot. Um, and then you practice it and it doesn't sound good and you practice it some more and it sounds a little better. And then um, if you're the Beatles, you get Billy Preston to join your band and then it sounds like <laughs> a lot better. <laughs> but, but the thing is, is like, they're, they're, they were the Beatles. They were a good band. Um, you know, if they had had, like they talk about you know, in the documentary going like, what if we had more time? And probably if they had more time, they would have sounded really good, just the four of them. Um, but they just didn't do it that way. No, and there's sort of a lot of crazy deadlines that are in place and, and a calendar that's constantly being crossed off and modified and stuff like that. And you, you sense that very weird time pressure going on. Before we go any further, though, uh, for those of you who haven't one or two of you out there who have not watched uh, any of this documentary so far, which I believe is now just being piped into homes and cars all over America. I think you just probably have to watch it. Um, here's a little clip. Uh, it is from part one of the three parts. I think other than that, it's fairly self-explanatory. We've really got to sort out this because we're, we're rehearsing and we're trying to like get it together for the TV show. So we really, like you said, we've only been through four numbers. Mm. Well... So we probably got to get some system to get through like 20 or 30 and no more and have learned them. So we're going to get all the chords so we can all vamp more. Yeah. Then we can like all play every solo we need. But like it's got to sound as though it's improving. I start fine. But what mm -hmm. I'm doing is starting to have something, you know, have some structure to it. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean, you know. You know I mean, it's just that then, way of doing it, you know. Puts me off the way I'm trying to do it. Yeah, I can only do me, you know, that one way. However, I do, you know. Yeah. Let's do another song. No, come on, we're learn this. This is why we take so long. I, I think we played ten times, and so it's sort of in there. And then I think we could come and play quite good then. But it's only, I don't know, it's just like different approaches, you know. 
I'll say improvise it, man. All right, so two things. So one of them is you're definitely going to want to use, if you haven't watched this yet, closed captioning, subtitles, whatever. Um, and the other thing is that the Disney people, of course, tried – I mean, the, in fact, the word we just bleeped, we bleeped it because we have FCC uh, oversight. But Disney actually tried to get all the swear words taken out of this. And the Beatles, you know, I mean, they were – Working class lads from Liverpool, and they used salty language, and Jackson stood his ground. And I think maybe even their surviving Beatles said, no, no, you can't cut out all the swear words. That's the way we talked. Disney also typically likes to cut smoking out of of its movies, and that would be impossible. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. What were you going to say? I just said good luck on this one. Right. Yes. There was no thank you for not smoking uh, possibilities there. So, you know, Metcalf, one of the things that I think that this does offer us that we haven't – we don't often have, particularly – in relation to the Beatles, but, you know, is that idea of the moment of creation. You know, I mean, it's weird because we did start the week talking about Sondheim and the song Finishing the Hat. And and, and so here we are at the end of the week, and, and there is a sense that at one point there is no such song as Get Back, and suddenly there is a song called that is recognizably Get Back, and that seems to happen in almost an eye blink. You know, it goes from this very kind of unformed thing to a formed thing. And I'm thinking about you in particular, and and Brian as well, people who who write music. It must be kind of interesting to watch something like that come into being. Well, I'm glad you brought up Get Back because, yeah, I'm assuming that almost everybody who watches this thing and watches that particular segment has the same... I don't know, reaction of astonishment, because it does seem, as you say, to be the case that, you know, from a, I mean, initially it's like a little bass kind of rhythmic riff. And then he, and then he kind of uh, fills in the harmony a little bit, and then he starts dummying in some words. And then like within, I don't know, two minutes or something, you have the rough outline of, of get back a song that has, you know, held the, global stage for 55 years and it and it takes shape before our eyes i i certainly hope that it doesn't turn out that you know he'd been back at the house working on it for two weeks <laughs> because yeah, we, that would really that would really kind of wreck the story right but but i but i will say this too and i and i hope in a maybe a little bit later we could talk specifically about paul mccartney whose sort of amazingness i think is on full view here but um you know, when I when I watched that, and I actually had to back it up and watch it a, a few times, I also thought to myself, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be fabulous to have a video record of you know here, there, and everywhere taking shape like that, or or a day in a life or something? You know, I mean, it, it's kind of too bad in a way that that we that we don't have a more complete. Uh, you know, kind of kind of video history of some of the other albums taking shape the way that this one was, because because that moment is really truly stunning. All right, yeah. Except then you'd have like a whole bunch of you know clips of Paul going scrambled eggs, da 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 da, scrambled eggs. Um, so uh, let's uh, before we get the other panelists to chime in here, let's actually hear a little bit of what that moment sounds like, according to Jonathan McPants, who's a um, kind of a numbers person. Uh, it's actually three minutes and 39 seconds in the film from Paul strumming on the bass to them kind of fully playing the song. Three minutes and 39 seconds. This will be a little bit shorter than that, but it'll give you a sense.
That's what it sounds like. Um, I don't know, Irene. This is probably something that you haven't experienced all, all that much, kind of. And, and its music is unusual too. I think it's really possible to look over the shoulder of Joyce Carol Oates and see her, you know, kind of birthing a piece of fiction or something. Uh, but so, what was that like for you? I mean, it, it's not j- get back is the most obvious example, but everything is kind of mumbled through and kind of fainted at a little bit, uh, and then kind of brought into in, into the light. Uh, give me your sense as somebody who who teaches a lot about creative people. What you learned about that? Okay, yeah. Well, I just want to say first that I, that was such a great clip, and I and part of it is because we know. Um, we know the song, we know what the final song sounded like. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it would be really different watching somebody's creative process if you didn't know what the, the final sounds song was like. And the fact that we do sort of gave it a uh, an intensity or something that I think is was great. Um, as far as the process itself, I, I was thinking about how, wow, this is just like writing in a way. You know, you try something, it doesn't work. You try this, ooh, this really works, you know? And, um, and it's interesting, it just made me think yeah, so it's true. I mean, writers write about their creative process, you know, and you can read it, but you can't actually be with them in the room when they do it, unless you're a writing teacher like I am. And you can sort of really try to really get into the nitty gritty of it with people. Um, and it's, it's beautiful. You know, the creative process is fantastic. And, and I agree with, I was thinking when Steve said that it was just too bad, we can't get it for the other, couldn't see the same thing with the other songs. And I was thinking, would we, you know, how much do we want to, and what does it do? What does it really do to know about the creative process? I mean, it teaches you something. If if some, if you might be a creator, it teaches people that it it doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's a process. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, plus it's just fascinating to marvel at how people do these things. Yeah, I thought, you know, Brian, one of the things that intrigued me was actually a slightly different or a dramatically different moment, but particularly going into this with like my understanding about even the White Album sessions was that they were very fractious and people tended to work alone on their stuff for a while and then maybe bring the other people in. But I mean, for the one big 24-hour session, George Harrison wasn't even in the country. He was in the U.S., you know, and they were really getting on each other's nerves. But Ringo was the one who quit the band for a protracted period during all that. So I was surprised to find them 
not arguing all that much and really trying to help one another. And there's one, I thought, incredibly tender scene. I mean, I think we all have to agree that Ringo emerges as world-class mensch, you know? He just seems like this really nice and gentle person who's, you know... Not to mention world-class drummer. Yeah, he's also a really good drummer, not no matter what John Lennon said when he was being mean. Um, and um, But there's a scene, uh, Brian, where uh, Ringo is playing around with uh, Octopus's Garden, and George comes over... And, and maybe relishing the position of being, you know, able to teach somebody when he's constantly being musically bullied by, <laughs> by Lennon and McCartney. I mean, he really works with in a very gentle and affirming way. He's trying to get Ringo to what's sort of the bridge of the song. It's the moment where the song modulates up out of its verse, you know, in, in, into uh, something uh, a little higher and, and different. And I don't think we really see them get there. But I don't know that that you pick your own favorite thing, Brian. But I thought, wow, that's really nice watching George, you know, kind of give Ringo a little songwriting help. Actually, like I think George is also the guy who tells Paul when he has the right melody for "Get Back," right? Mm-hmm. When he goes, "That's it," you know, like like there's that point where Paul is searching for the melody, and then yeah. you hear he sings the melody, and you hear George go, "That's it," and it's like, "Stop looking." Yeah. <laughs> you found- and I think that, like, that's, I mean, again, like, going back to the idea that the Beatles were really, like, just, like, a really good but, you know, normal band. Like, that's, like, the collaboration is what matters here. Like, the reason that I think that these things happen so quickly is because they had somebody else telling them, like, you know, someone throws out an idea and someone goes, no, no, yes, and then stop. You know, like, that's the, you know, we, we have what we need. Keep developing it. And George, as it turns out, is very good at that, right? He's... <laughs> He's like, he's a really good editor. He's, you know, he, he's, you know, people have these raw things. And then George is the person who twice, at least that I can remember, like those two examples comes over and says, you have it, let's do this one other thing and then it'll be great. And like, there's, that's, I think that's part of the, part of why it happened so quickly. Like, it's not surprising because they've been working together for a decade, (laughs) you know, like they're, they're good at this. Right. And they've come through this incredible period of, creative foment. I mean, you can decide, you can start it when you want. It's 65, I think, is Rubber Soul, and from there, it's Yesterday uh, and Today, uh, and and it's Revolver, and it's Sgt. Pepper, and Magical Mystery Tour, uh, and the White Album. All of those are, are sort of compressed into, like, three to four years <laughs> doing all of these things. I think, like, so much is made of, like, the acrimony in the band, but, like, I, it, it's hard to imagine that, that uh, it's hard to imagine that it doesn't feel a little bit like tabloid drama, you know, in that like they're, what they're sort of vibing off of is just that like creative people working together have differences and they look, they sound like they're arguing, but they're really just figuring it out. <laughs> you know, like there's, there's a, like there's a fair amount of that going on in the documentary the whole time. Hmm. All right. I want to take a little break here. We're, I should say, we don't usually do this. We usually have sort of different things for our two segments, but I feel like a, if there's a reason to watch the whole seven hours and 48 minutes, which I'm not completely convinced there is, it, it's because it's really interesting to talk about with the people you're watching it with or other people in your life. So we have to, to talk more about this. We're going to do that on the other side of this. Isn't it a pity? Some things take so long. Too many people, and see we're all the same. 
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. Yeah, no, I, I don't think he was saying that George was smarter than John. I was just he was just expressing an opinion. I, I'm really sorry. Yoko is here. She was just upset about something Brian said uh, right at the end of the previous segment. And could you could you like move like an inch more away? You're just way too close to me, Yoko. Uh, all right, so we're back. We're talking about Get Back, the three part uh, Beatles documentary uh, by Peter Jackson. Uh, it is uh, taken from 60 hours of footage. I'm pretty sure Jackson added the thing where Gandalf is at the recording sessions. I don't think that's historically accurate. But uh, with us today, Steve Metcalf, Irene Papoulis, and Brian Slattery uh, are all here. You know, and, and, and the thing that you just heard is something we need to get to in this segment, which is there's a lot of what you might call screwing around in this documentary. I mean, musicians in recording sessions do like to screw around, I think, and and just to blow off steam or to relax or get into a groove. They're playing a lot of old songs, old rock and roll or, or kind of corny stuff. Um, we'll come to that in a second. But, but since Yoko is here, Irene, I mean, this is one of the things that's getting talked about a lot is the hovering, needle-pointing uh, uh, presence uh, of Yoko Ono uh, at all of these recording sessions. We should say, to be fair, uh, Maureen is there sometimes. I mean, like all, all of the wives are there uh, sometimes, but they're not there the way Yoko is. So uh, I don't know how did that. How did how did you process all that, Irene? Um, yeah, they're there, but they're sitting across the room, you know. And she, she, um, I, I thought it was at first. I felt, you know, I mean, we all have that. I. We all we all know the type, and her name has become the the you know that what the word we use when we talk about that type of person. She's a Yoko Yoko Ono. Um, it, I thought it was amazing, uh, fascinating how she would sit. Yes, 
Kellen, as you said, so close to him. And she would come in and it was almost like she was invisible to everyone except him. You know, they didn't even say hello to her when they all came in in the morning. No one said hello to her or anything. And she was very quite unobtrusive. And she would just, but she would have in the beginning, she had her sewing and she had letter writing or whatever she was doing. And she would just kind of curl up two inches away from him. And you would, we would all be saying like, go away, just let them do their own thing. Don't stay there. Um, but I, I thought it was, so it was very interesting how the, how, how she just, she was just kind of, yeah, it was just kind of there. Um, but at the same time, he seemed to, he, he, you know, cause at first I was thinking like, is it driving him crazy too? But I don't think I didn't, I think he, she, she, she supported him in a way that really worked for him. And even there was this moment when Paul said, well, if John had to choose between the Beatles and her, he would, he would choose her and that's okay. You know, like, so there was a, also an acceptance of that kind of a relationship where, um, where she just, she just, you know, he chose her and that's it. You know, you can't, you can't fight that. You can't argue with it. Right. And other times he appears to kind of affirm the relationship. I mean, he knows he's on camera. That may have something to do with it. Yeah. And uh, he has this great line at one point. He says, it's going to be such an incredible sort, sort of comical thing. Like in 50 years time, you know, they broke up because Yoko sat on an amp um, that, you know, he's just sort of he sees this whole thing that's unfolding is a little bit. Uh, on the silly side. But so Metcalf, I don't know. Once again, we all lived through this. We all, everybody had their own theory about, you know, what we, what Yoko was or wasn't doing there. Does this shed any light on that at all? Oh, yeah, I think uh, quite a bit because, you know, the, the mythology has always been that she was somehow obnoxiously intrusive and, you know, she was kind of there in a way that made the others feel uncomfortable and resentful and whatever. And Actually, no such thing happens. And, and in fact, I think Paul a little bit later has a couple of words to say about, you know, how, how nice it is to have her and how obviously supportive she is of John and all that. So, so I, I feel like that's one of the several storylines created by the Lindsay Hogg movie that is just utterly exploded by this thing. Another one being, of course, McCartney was this obnoxious you know, kind of over micromanaging schoolmarm, you know, who, who, who kind of directed the others to go in directions that they might not have wanted to be. You know, I think, I think the lie is put to that as well. I mean, obviously, Paul had a lot more sense of direction and focus than, than the other three, to put it mildly. But, but I also get the sense that they kind of you know, at some level accepted that and realized that that was necessary if the Beatles were going to be the Beatles. Yeah, although I, I think that McCartney and, and Brian, I'd be interested in having you chime in about this too. Some Like I know that in the world of acting and directing and stuff like that, the one thing that you don't do to an, act, to an actor if you're a director or God knows a playwright is say the line to them exactly the way you want them to say it. <laughs> like that's, you just don't do that. That's like the worst thing you can do. Uh, and and there's a way in which McCartney, and this goes on, I, I have this very raw, unformed memory of this documentary about Sir Paul um, putting together an all-star concert post-911 uh, to celebrate uh, and encourage the resilience of New York City. And he'd written one of those We Are the World type songs. It wasn't really particularly good, but he was really worried about sort of how that was going to be performed by all the all-stars that he had. And I think it's Eric Clapton, but there's a backstage thing where Paul says, okay, and then we're going to come to this bit of a break, and, and then you'll, you should play. And he starts singing a guitar solo to Eric Clapton, who finally says, 
I think I know probably how I'm going to play the solo. Uh, and But that's the thing he can't help himself doing. He And it apparently was a big part of the friction with Ringo during uh, the White Album is he would just tell Ringo exactly how to play the drums. And and Brian, I don't know, maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of the the ethics of that, if that's the right word, or, or, or the folk ways of that within rehearsal sessions. Yeah, right. I mean, I think that like uh... – of of the I mean what you just said of the of the four of them Paul has the best sense of what the finished product might sound like like you when he's playing practice you can you can tell that he hears the rest of it like he hears the stuff that isn't there yet and um the the part where it's kind of a rub is that I think that like um an a more sort of generous band leader he's sort of the de facto band leader because of that. I think like a more generous band leader is able to is able to tell people like, you know, uh, we could have more of this or less of this, but let the people decide what that means to them. Um, and Paul's sort of like, quote unquote, mistake is that he has it, you know, he wants them to play it exactly the way he's hearing it. <laughs> and there's it's one of those kinds of things is that it's where the, the question is like a difference of degree, but it means a lot to the person getting the feedback. Right. Like. There's a difference between saying like I want I want I want you to put more of this into it, and saying like I want you to play these exact notes, which is then getting into the question of like maybe you should just write it down for me so we can stop talking about it. <laughs> well, well, as McPants points out, George almost says those words. He says, "Whatever, just tell me what you want me to play, and I'll play it. Uh, I'll play whatever will make you happy. Fine by me." Uh, I don't think right. that's said in a spirit of incredible generosity on George's part. He's just sort of <laughs> at his at his wit's end. But you know, it yeah. made it made me also think of the Pet Sound sessions where you know Brian Wilson famously would show up with the entire you know, God only knows in his head. He, he knew what it, he wanted every single instrument to sound like. And, and he'd have these really large ensembles of, in some cases, orchestral musicians, session musicians. And he'd kind of walk around and he'd more, as I understand it, Steve, you can correct me, uh, kind of sing what he wanted them to, to play directly to them. And he knew in that incredible genius mind um, you know how it was all going to come together, and I think you can do that when you're paying somebody. <laughs> you know, but but if it's somebody that you've known since they were 15 and you were 16, and now you're in your mid to late 20s and you've been in this band together for a really long time, I just don't think it goes over that well. I I, I just you know I'm I'm not the help. I'm your friend. I'm your bandmate. Um, I don't know, Big Cap. Did you want to react to that at all? Yeah, I would. So you're you're right. I mean, when when Brian in Pet Sounds would walk over to Hal Blaine, you know, who had played on two thousand records by then, and starts dictating the drum licks that he wants, Blaine obviously doesn't doesn't react badly because he's a session guy. He's getting paid to do what Brian Wilson wants, and it is a fundamentally different you know, kind of uh, chemistry and relationship than McCartney would have with with George or, or John. You know, the other thing I got to say, you know, as I watch this thing from time to time, I thought to myself, it, it would be helpful if these guys over the course of their, you know, 10 year by then career had like picked up at least some rudiments of how to notate music because they could have saved themselves a lot of time. I don't, you know, McCartney famously has always said, well, if I had studied music, I would have been less original because I would have fallen into, you know, textbook harmony patterns or something. And there's probably something to be said for that. But but just knowing enough, you know, uh, notational 
kind of kind of uh, I don't know kind of being able to express themselves so that they didn't have to, for example, shout across the room, you know, F minor seven, F minor seven, you know, I mean, if they, if they could just jot down a few things, they would have, they would have, I think, had an easier time assembling these things. You know, Irene, uh, one of the things that I've been, I was finding myself thinking about as I was watching this thing, and I don't know, I think all of us, maybe not all of us, some of us feel, whatever it is, it's too damn long. Um, and, And there's just an awful lot of stuff that, Peter Jackson apparently felt he was. He says he was worried that another fifty years would go by and nobody would see things that he cut out. Uh, so he didn't want to cut that, cut out things. Uh, but I mean, I feel like there's a repetitious quality to an awful lot of what I'm seeing. But you know, in particular, one of the things that there's just a lot of, and and I found myself rephrasing. Perhaps this is real a real apostasy to do this, but I, I found myself rephrasing Hannah Arendt and talking, thinking to myself, the banality of genius. You know, there's a way in which they play these, you know, not particularly impressive versions of blue suede shoes or, you know, or Johnny B. Good or something. And I'm thinking, why am I watching this? They're just screwing around. They're not doing anything that's going to lead to anything important. They're just screwing around, playing music that they like from the past. Uh, you know, why do I have to watch so much screwing around? Around. And, and Irene, I'm wondering if you had a particular reaction to all that. Yeah, I, I do. I have two reactions to that. First is, yeah, I mean, I've listened to a lot of people do that and it's and, and also sort of been a part of it myself. And when you're a part of it, it's so much fun to play around like that. But when you're listening to it, it's so much less fun. Um, but it, but should, I, was we should, I should point about, out that Irene was in We Five for uh, what about <laughs> about six months, and yeah. then there were some problems, I think. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I um, and so, I, but it made me think. Actually, watching it and feeling uh, every once in a while, I would just feel like, why am I watching it? Also, and then I would sort of a couple of times I I, I skip forward a little bit, and then I sort of felt like, oh no, I think I missed something when you you know when you skip forward because wherever we were then. So then I would go back because I didn't want to miss something. So it's interesting how among the the way the film is that among those sort of, you know, the dullness uh, for the viewer, there's there are these flashes of of interesting things happening. So so that was hard. But also it made me think a lot about just the idea of hanging out. You know, I think in those days, hanging out was so much more common than it is now. And and so it made me think about, I mean, hanging out with other people, just kind of sitting around with nothing to do or just doing a couple of things, but not really being that productive and hanging out. We never do that anymore. I mean, definitely <laughs> during during COVID, but even before there's so much, we're so much more goal oriented. Like, why are we getting together? You know, or why are we, if we're, you know, or it's a finite amount of time or something but there's just this sense here of you know and the and the some of the people that were just kind of sitting around the edges you know like yeah we're just hanging out it's fine that's just what they did and it seemed so culturally different but interesting to think about why we never do that or you know i mean we still waste time i know people always waste time but we don't waste time hanging out with other people at least i don't and 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 i sort of miss that Right. Well, there's also the whole question of being able to hang out like that in a studio. I mean, most musicians, if they're paying for studio time, they're going to try to use it more efficiently. But, you know, Brian, one thing that I was wondering, and I think I communicated this to to you guys uh, as we were getting ready, was they were coming out of a period where they had become much, much more experimental. The White Album is full of experimental stuff, uh, as is Magical Mystery Tour, full of, and and Sgt. Pepper. And, And in a lot of ways, they'd gotten a little bit away from, I think, being a band in, in the more in, in the sense that would have been connected 
to them in, in say, 63 or 62, something like that. Uh, and I'm wondering if one of the reasons they were playing all those those chestnuts was just to kind of remind themselves how to be a band. I mean, it makes total sense that that's, that's what they're doing. They're... As, I mean, early on, they also point out that they've they, you know, they don't have a manager anymore, and it it did strike me that like uh, using studio time to do that was is probably like you know if you had a manager, they would have said look if you want to do this, go ahead, but I'm not going to shell out <laughs> money for this. Like you just go over to somebody's house and do it, and then come into the studio. But yeah, for sure. I mean, they. I mean, like George again. George keeps emerging as the you know the guy that's like the most. If there's a thread here, it's his right. But you know he he talks about how he's getting better and better just because he's playing so much. You know, like he's like day in and day out, he feels like he's you know he's getting better as an instrument, and that that totally tracks. You know that the more you play, the better you are at it, <laughs> and it's it, it makes total sense that 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 not just uh, not just that they played a bit better as individuals, but that the practice goes better and better. You know, as the weeks go on. So we're kind of running out of time here, and I, I knew we could talk for two whole segments about this. But just to circle back, Metcalf, you did. I, I thought there was maybe one more thing you might want to say about McCartney, about who he is, kind of musically at this minute. I think it's a perception that that I share with you. Yeah, and I think well, just to reduce it to its simplest form, I, I think we have to credit McCartney with being the driving force behind the Beatles. Period. And, and even Lennon earlier on, I mean, when they, were, when they were starting to get famous and everything, would say in interviews, he would say, oh, you know, I'm the laziest person in England. And if it weren't for Paul calling us up here, you know, we'd go months without even stepping into the studio. But it was Paul who, you know, who, who, who brought that discipline. And I think Paul who had the, it, it now emerges, you know, who, who had sort of the, the breadth of musical experience and background to kind of lead the Beatles in these directions that were worlds away from Chuck Berry and Little Richard. Um, and, and although, you know, they always wanted to maintain their ties to that world, uh, I think John especially, um, you know, it was Paul who, who really, I think, uh, took, them, took them to areas that, uh, along with George Martin, that, that nobody had even dreamed when, when they were in Hamburg and just starting out and all that. So, so that's number one. I also think that McCartney, who's now, what, almost 80 or something, you know, ha- has just earned the right to be acknowledged as the phenomenal uh, kind of musical presence that he really is. There was a, you guys maybe saw there was a New Yorker, not profile really, but a little piece by David Remnick a few weeks ago on Paul. And and Remnick, not given to overstatement usually, said, and I wrote this down, he said, who among the living has brought more delight into the world, unquote, referring to Paul McCartney. And I think, you know, there's something to be said for that. And so if there's, if there's many uh, takeaways from this Peter Jackson documentary one of them i think is just the remarkableness of sir paul mccartney all right we're gonna have to leave it there although i did want to have to i had a whole take on class that i wanted to get to i'll have to file that away for a future date let's go to a break we'll be back we have to make some recommendations
right. Uh, some quick thank yous. Dylan Reyes in the house again today to uh, run the board here for uh, this particular episode. He's our very, very impressive intern. Not enjoying this as much as the ABBA uh, episode, which is more of a labor of love for Dylan. Cat uh, Pastor's there making sure, uh, being kind of Paul McCartney, saying, no, 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 not like that. Uh, and uh, obviously Jonathan McPants is the producer of this particular episode. Uh, we're back with our panel, Irene Papoulis, Brian Slattery, Steve Metcalf, uh, and probably in that order, let's uh, do some endorsements or recommendations. Irene, what have you got for us? I'm I'm going with the uh, music um, creative process theme because I the show Succession, which I really like. That's another story. Um, and um, but I, one of the things I like the most about it by far is the music. I just think it's so beautiful. All the variations on the theme. And there's a YouTube video where the composer Nicholas Bertel describes his process, his creative process of of writing that has writing the theme and writing the variations on the theme based on his sense of what's going on with the characters and the show. And it's, I found it fascinating to realize that in fact, he really does have themes for the different characters and really pay attention to them. And he just, he sits there with a piano and describes that. And it's a very interesting little video. So I'm endorsing that. Here's a Babulian through line for you. So Nicholas Bretel also wrote the, wrote the theme music for Slate Culture Gabfest, uh, and they did a whole episode where they worked with him. You got to see kind of Peter Jackson style, them working with him on what this theme music was going to be. And Slate Culture Gabfest is where I stole the idea for endorsements. So it all, all just ties together in a very... Papulian and isn't one of the guys named Steve Steve Metcalf? And the other, yeah, one, of, one of the veils is named Steve Metcalf. It's getting weird now. All right, yeah. uh, uh, Brian, what have you got for us? Um, today is Bandcamp Friday. For those of you who don't know what Bandcamp is, it's a sort of uh, interesting shining light in the way you can organize the music industry in ways that feel fair to most people. Um, Bandcamp is an online platform. There's a ton of bands on it at this point, um, including many that you already know. And uh, once a month, every Friday, Bandcamp waives its fees so that any money that you put into it goes straight to the artist with them taking zero dollars. And uh, it's, been, it's turned out to be a really uh, big deal for a lot of bands. So this is, a, this is a good day to go around Bandcamp and see what looks good to you and then to buy it. And they have great music journalism. So there's that. All right. Uh, and uh, Mr. Metcalf, what do you have for us? So uh, I hope this is not too self-serving. As I hope many uh, listeners know, the uh, esteemed Garmony Chamber Music Concert Series at the Hart School at the University of Hartford, which was unfortunately canceled last year because of the pandemic, is back this year. We've already had the first two of our four concerts, but there are two more. Um, the first of which is coming up on January 27th. The absolutely astounding percussionist Shane Shanahan, who has long been associated with Yo-Yo Ma's Silk Road Ensemble, uh, will be the headliner. And he's bringing some of his percussionist colleagues for an evening of, uh, of percussion music, which I guarantee you will be entertaining because he always is. And that's January 27th at... Um, actually at the Lincoln Theater at the University of Hartford. And then the, the fourth and final Garmony concert for the season is the um, rapidly rising operatic uh, bass baritone Ryan Speedo Green, who is, uh, as I say, becoming a, a kind of operatic superstar before our eyes. And he is a heart alum, but he will be uh, appearing on March 24th, um, 
at the Millard Auditorium at, at Hart. So those are the final two Garmony concerts, and uh, I hope uh, you'll all come. I've been to a lot of these concerts. Uh, they're great. Uh, they're fun. I've learned a lot about music from them. But also noticing, you know, when you're talking about them, you're kind of sliding a little bit into an Ed Sullivan intona- intonation. Yeah, what do you know? Before we bring out Ryan Speedo Green, uh, so uh, I've <laughs> former Newark Mayor Hugh Anicio. Right, we're sitting out here in our studio audience right now. Uh, so I've got a uh, my recommendation is something called Radio Dot Garden. So just you just type that into the address field, Radio Dot Garden. What it is, you'll see a globe full of green dots, and all of the green dots are radio stations. And using by zooming in, zooming out, moving your uh, cursor, you can listen to a radio station in Norway. Way, and then one in Guatemala and then one in Senegal. And I mean, it's really, really, really addictive. And, and you hear all kinds of things that you would just never hear. Uh, don't don't start doing this if you don't have 45 minutes to an hour available, because you're not going to want to stop. It gets very, very I, addictive. And so, what I, you are, you are you saying something, Brian? I've wasted weeks of my life on Radio Garden. <laughs> <laughs> the, the bad news, it turns out that at any given moment, 40% of the radio stations in the world are playing Ed Sheeran songs. But, you know, other than that, though, it really is, it flings open the doors of, and as a radio person, I just, I, I couldn't be more fascinated by it. Oh, and, and if you click on the search thing, uh, you, you'll get a kind of drop-down menu that includes, like, Brian Eno's five favorite radio stations in the world and, and why he likes them. And you get some recommendations, and otherwise you're going to be clicking on a lot of dots and not necessarily liking what you hear. So it's fun to play around with. Uh, radio.garden, that's all you need to know. And all you need is love, love for our panelists today, Irene Papoulis, Steve Metcalf, Brian Slattery. Thanks to McPants. Thanks to Dylan Rays and Cat Pastor. Thanks to you. We'll be back next week. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.